You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back. My name's Amelia and today we've got a really cool guest on the show. We have Professor Judy DeHaan, who is the head of the Oxidative Stress Laboratory, which I hope she's about to correct me on. I'm really, really curious about what she does. Welcome to the show, Judy. Well, thank you, Amelia. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm really looking forward to sharing some of the work that I do with you and with your audience today. So yeah, first of all, just a really big thank you for having me. And um, I'll tell you a little bit about what I do and where my research has been taking me. That would be fantastic. Yes. So as you said, I'm the head of the Oxidative Stress Laboratory at the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute. I've been the head of the laboratory for quite some time now, and I've put together a really nice team of researchers. And we're really interested in looking at novel ways to cure the consequences of people living with diabetes. Diabetes is really something that is on the increase, very much related to the lifestyle characteristics that we nowadays are facing, such as a sedentary lifestyle. And so many people are developing type 2 diabetes. And what a lot of people don't realize is that living with diabetes can give rise to serious consequences. So uh, consequences on our health which impact things such as our cardiovascular system. It really affects the micro and macrovascular complications of our body. And by that, what do I mean by micro and macrovascular complications? Well, essentially, it's the vessels that become affected because of diabetes. And so you can get the macrovascular complications or the complications that lead to things such as heart attacks and stroke. And then you can also get the microvascular complications, which is really the small vessels of the body. So the kidneys can become affected. Your eyesight can become affected, leading to blindness. Um, you can also have neuropathy, which is really the, the vessels of, that affect your hands and your, and your extremities and your lower limbs. So you can have things such as amputations and um, ulcers, etc. So it's really quite a severe impact of living with, this, with type 2 diabetes. So that's really what we focused on in our laboratories, finding novel cures to treat these complications. Are you able to quickly describe what a novel cure is? Because I suspect most people listening might think that a novel is a book. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so we're trying to look at new ways. I guess what I mean by novel is new ways to, to treat these complications. So if you have type 1 or type 2 diabetes, and maybe I should just briefly explain the difference between the two. That'd be great. Yeah, so most people uh, will develop the, a type 2 form of diabetes, which is essentially with older age or with the onset of obesity, the body is no longer able to respond to insulin. So you land up having too much glucose in your blood because your organs, such as your muscles, don't remove the glucose from your blood. So that's a form of diabetes known as type 2 diabetes. And about 80 to 85% of patients are type 2 diabetics. And then you have the rest, which is a type 1 form of diabetes, which is basically where you don't produce enough insulin. So the pancreatic cells of your body don't produce this all-important hormone, which tells the body to take up glucose from the blood. And so whether you have type 1 or type 2 diabetes, essentially the complications are very similar because it's the glucose that's 
floating around in the blood, which is actually leading to these complications. So when I say we're looking for novel treatments, essentially there are treatments on the market which lower your blood glucose levels, and there are a number of them available, but there aren't really treatments available that target the complications that arise as a consequence of diabetes. So we're looking at new ways to treat these complications. And the other thing I can add to that is that Recently, there have been some very exciting developments where some drugs have become are being examined now because they can also lower, one, they lower blood glucose, but two, they also have an impact on the complications. So there's one called SGLT2, which is an inhibitor, and this has really been a, a novel sort of breakthrough as well because it's able to lower blood glucose, but it's also able to have very good side effects in lowering the, comp the cardiovascular complications associated with diabetes. So my research is really looking at other novel ways of treating these complications. And we've been focusing on the oxidative stress and the inflammation that underpins many of the mechanisms that give rise to these complications. It sounds like fascinating work. And it's also work that, like, how many people do you happen to know off the top of your head are living with diabetes in Australia? So in Australia, approximately 1.3 million adults are currently living with type 2 diabetes. And indeed, diabetes is now considered a global pandemic, where globally 415 million people are currently living with type 2 diabetes. And importantly, this number is predicted to increase to 642 million by the year 2040. There are also a significant number of patients who are unaware that they have diabetes. These patients are termed pre-diabetic, and what that means is that they are living with elevated blood glucose levels, but are unaware that these levels are trending upwards and that they will then go on to develop type 2 diabetes. So it's the estimation that there are about 500,000 people in Australia who are unaware that they have pre-diabetes, and I guess the best way to protect yourself against having prediabetes is to modify lifestyle and also, importantly, to have your annual checkups at your GP. And when you're at your GP, to ask to have a blood glucose test, which is really very, very easy and simple. It's merely a blood prick and then on a small instrument called a glucometer, the GP is able to read your blood glucose levels. And at least by knowing whether your blood glucose levels are trending upwards, one can then intervene and take the necessary precautions to protect against you going on to develop type 2 diabetes. That's a huge number of people. And I think often when we think about getting a disease, you kind of just focus in on that disease or illness and you're like, oh, that's a shame I've got this thing, um, but you don't necessarily think about all the ripple-on effects and it sounds like there is a huge number of side effects and ripple-on effects on the quality of your life that can come particularly with diabetes. And so I'd be right in understanding that you're sort of focused on assisting people with those side effects, which can obviously be hugely detrimental to their lives. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think, as I said earlier, that people sometimes don't realise the consequences of living with an illness like diabetes. Um, yes, absolutely. If we can improve the quality of life and remove these complications, that, that would be a hugely important and, and impactful. Yeah, it could clearly make a huge difference to a lot of people's life quality. <laughs> Yes, exactly. You know, um, things such as you develop, certainly from uh, very early on, diabetic patients start to 
lay down deposits of fat in the vessel walls, which can lead to plaque formation in the vessels. And when you have these plaques, these atherosclerotic plaques, as they're called, they can actually rupture and give rise to heart attacks and strokes. So very significant consequences of living with diabetes. Yeah. And I've also, I've heard some other sort of uh, treatments and side effects of the excess glucose or the excess sugar in your blood that have definitely inspired me to live more healthily, I have to say. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I mean, there's, you know, there's other interventions, lifestyle interventions, which uh, which are very important for managing diabetes as well. So, you know, things like exercise and intake of, of good quality foods, for example, these are all things which can help improve your control of, of these severe consequences. So moving more is really, really important. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's also something that we a lot of us would be struggling with this year, particularly. Yes, absolutely. This hasn't been the best year for that sort of thing. Um, I know myself, you know, I'm, I'm just not getting around as much as I'd like to. So it's very hard. Everybody's working from home now and, uh, you know, not getting as much exercise, etc., as as probably would be doing if we were going to work. So yes, 100%. Okay, so you're doing a lot of amazing research, but you're also leading a team doing this research. So I feel like that's a lot more complicated than just being a pure researcher, are you able to go into what an average day, if there is such a thing, what that looks like for you? Yes. So the one thing about being in science is I find it's really exciting because every day is different, which is, which is really interesting. And that's what keeps us all motivated and, and driven to do our research. I have a small team of researchers, but they have been with me. Several of them have been with me for many years. I've got a postdoc who runs a lot of the actual experiments in the lab. So there's all sorts of aspects to what we do. There's designing the experiments, there's the implementation of the experiments, carrying out the experiments, analyzing them, presenting the experiments at conferences, writing them up and getting them published in journals, which is really exciting. Talking to people in the field, interacting all the time with other researchers, all these sorts of things just make our job so much more um, exciting and interesting. So there's, there's, so many different facets to what we do and of course one of my passions is teaching the students so I really love having students I have honor students I have master students PhD students and really sort of sharing my passion with them is is really what makes my everyday going to work just that much more enjoyable that's awesome because it's like like it's important to do the work but it's also important to raise up the people underneath you who are going to carry on the work as well yeah absolutely absolutely um as I say, the thing that I really enjoy is talking to, you know, the students that are coming through and inspiring them and telling them the journey that I've been on and, yeah, hopefully imparting some of that so that they'll, you know, want to carry on in research. And especially for, you know, the younger students these days, getting funding for research is really not easy. There's a lot of competition out there and you just have to keep trying. And one thing about science that's taught me is to be resilient and, you know, you never give up. So, I just keep pushing every time, every opportunity that I can to you know, improve myself and to improve you know, this, this, the position of the lab and to get the resources and the funding, I will try my absolute to do that. So that's, that's one thing I've learned in science is absolute resilience. Yeah. And that things won't necessarily just get handed to you. You have to work for them and work to keep them as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the one thing about science is that it's not a nine to five job. It's all the time um, 
you know, I'm always looking for new ideas and to, you know, trying to get inspired by what I do and working late at night, which, yeah, it's just, especially now with COVID where we're all working from home, the days just don't seem to end, but that's good. I mean, I love it and it's what I do and I'm, I'm really passionate about my work. So yeah, it's good. Do you still actually get to do hands-on research or, or are you more now in a management kind of role? Yeah, so I, I don't do much hands-on wet lab anymore, but of course it's directing my people and um, just making sure that everything runs smoothly and making sure that we have the resources and the funding, et cetera, to be able to carry on the work. Are you able to give us a bit of an outline of what an experiment might look like? What what sort of, what's something you might, like a question that you might ask and then how you'd go about answering that? Okay, so we have two ways two main ways of of looking at a a question. Firstly, we can do work in cell culture. So basically, this is called in vitro work, where uh, we'll grow cells in in a dish and we'll be able to treat them with various drugs and see what effect the drugs will have on the gene expression or the way the cell handles or responds to the drug. So that's our uh, one of the ways that we'll approach a problem. We also have our in vivo studies, which uh, we perform in in animals. And um, these studies are very well controlled by our animal ethics committees. So we're not allowed to do anything that hasn't been completely undergone extreme. We have to go through ethical rigor and make sure that we can justify exactly what we're doing for our experiments. And then we'll undertake those experiments and then we'll analyze the data. So it's one way of testing new drugs to make sure that what we hypothesize is actually what's happening in the animal model. By putting that together, by having the animal work together with the cell culture work, we can then get a a complete picture of what's actually happening for our experiments. Is there any work that's being done with people as well? So yes, uh, not in our lab. So we're preclinical. So a lot of the stuff we do is, is all at that stage where we're doing it mostly on the animals or the cell culture. But um, one can also look at, for example, tissues, which we can obtain from patients and do some analysis on if we're interested, for example, in a particular gene, which we think is important in our disease models, then we can have a look to see if that gene is overexpressed in a disease tissue or underexpressed, for example, what's happening at the, at the level of human, human tissue. But mostly, as I say, most of the work we do is, is preclinical. But then, of course, other people will take it one step further and might be then investigating it in patient cohorts, for example, in diabetic patients, can look at cohorts and have a look at what is expressed, for example, in the sample of blood from the patients. Or if a patient is undergoing a procedure, you might be able to get some some of the tissue and then examine that as well. Fantastic. So it really sounds like you your work is at the cutting edge. Yeah, I guess we, uh, we ask the questions that haven't been asked before and that puts us in a position where we're asking very novel, cutting-edge sort of questions. So, yes, that's correct. What are some of the skills that you need to be able to do your job? So I guess my skills um, have been developed over the years that I've been in science. When I was doing my PhD and in my postdoctoral years, I was very much hands-on in the lab, so I was performing all the experiments myself. And then as I've progressed Uh, with time. And now that I'm running my own lab, I've had to learn how to deal with people, 
how to delegate certain aspects of the work, how to manage the different aspects of the research, how to analyze the research and how to present the research at a much larger level. So interacting with other senior researchers and presenting the work at conferences, for example. So there's so many different facets and those all all take different skill sets. And those are the skill sets that I've had to really um, learn, especially from a managerial point of view. Because in a lot of ways, those management and kind of collaboration with stakeholders and even that high level application for funding and stuff, they're skills that you don't necessarily learn yeah, until you're at your level. So yeah, so you, there's no formal sort of training as, as far as those sorts of skill sets. And that's really something that you pick up as, as you're going along and you kind of learn by experience, I guess, whether it's good or bad. But as you move along, you definitely learn what you should do and what you need to improve on. Have you had mentors that have helped you along that journey? I think mentors are really important. And and yes, everybody should have mentors. And I certainly have had mentors along the way. So many people that have helped me sort of become uh, more confident in what I do. So, so yes, definitely had a few mentors along the way and would highly recommend either having a mentor or in fact, becoming a, men- a mentee. So that's that's really, really important. So yes, definitely plays, mentors play a big role in, in everyone's lives, actually. Oh, well, they can play such an important role in all facets of your life, really. Yes, exactly. I'm just wondering, like going back to just the fact that your research is kind of quite cutting edge and it is preclinical, do you do any kind of public outreach or is that is it sort of like too early in the process to be keeping the public informed? Yes, well, I have done a few public outreach in the past um, and mainly via the baker. So we often talk to our stakeholders and we talk to um, the public about what we do at the baker. So it's kind of an outreach so that they know what's going on, especially our donors to the baker are really important to us. And we often run one day sessions or people come into the baker and we tell them about the work that we're doing. And The feedback's always really positive. I think the public like to know what's going on. The public like to be informed. And we like to tell them about the research that we're performing at our institute. So definitely outreach is really important. Fantastic, especially for something like diabetes, which will touch most of our lives in some way. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, everybody knows somebody that's been affected by diabetes. And I think that the more understanding and the more outreach that we do, the, the better equipped people will be to deal with um, the consequences and also how to avoid um, having these consequences occur in their lives. Oh, definitely. How have you ended up in your role? Like what was the, your journey, say, from high school to where you are now? So I went to school in South Africa. When I was at school, I always knew that I wanted to do science. I always knew that I wanted to be in research and I knew that I wanted to do something medical. And that's the path that I I pursued when I left school. So I did a science degree for three years as an undergraduate. And then I went on and did an honors degree in medical biochemistry. And that sort of set me on the path for medical research. That was really always my interest. I didn't want to do research into anything other than medical. I then did a master's degree in South Africa, which really got me really involved in science. And at that time, um, I wanted to do my PhD, but 
with everything that was happening in South Africa, I realized that to do my PhD, I, it would be beneficial to do this overseas. So I reached out to someone I knew in Australia and I came to Australia to do my PhD. And I went to Monash University and did my PhD um, in the genetics of Down syndrome. And I know that's a bit of a, a leap away from what I'm doing now, but essentially it set me on the path towards what I'm doing now because when I did my PhD, I was focused on one particular gene on chromosome 21, which is in triplicate in individuals with Down syndrome. And that gene happened to be an antioxidant gene. And the rationale behind that was that in Down syndrome, there's this imbalance in your antioxidants. And that could then lead to, um, it could then affect the brain and that could lead to the mental retardation. And so that was my, really what set me off on looking at the imbalance in the antioxidant pathway and how oxidative stress might play an important role. And so one of the first things that I did during my postdoc was to create a novel mouse model where we actually knocked out one of the genes involved in the antioxidant pathway. And this particular knockout mouse model was then a good resource for me to use to examine situations where oxidative stress was in fact an underlying mechanism. And in diabetes, oxidative stress plays an important role. So I was able to use this mouse model to then investigate the consequences of having diabetes. And so one of the first studies that I performed when I joined the Baker was to use my mouse model and then to apply the techniques of making the mouse diabetic and having a look at the consequences in the mouse of having too much oxidative stress. And we were able to show that if you have oxidative stress, this affects the vessels of the mouse and it leads to deposition of fats in the vessel wall. And that leads to the atherosclerosis, which is the process of this hardening of the vessel wall. So I guess it's a long story to say that I, I always knew where I wanted to go right from the beginning, which then took me on this long journey all the way to where I am today. That's an amazing story. and. I never would have drawn any kind of connection between Down syndrome and diabetes, like ever. Yeah, well, that's right. And, and it's kind of not really a story that you can draw a line, but it was just the way that my journey evolved along that sort of path, which took me in a sort of strange way towards studying um, the complications of diabetes. And it's all because this underpinning oxidative stress was really what drove that. So, yeah, so it is a it is an interesting story. So you're always particularly interested in the research side of things. You never wanted to be like a doctor or a surgeon or something? That's a really good question. So when I was at school, I just knew that I wanted to do research. It was something that nobody was going to persuade me otherwise. And in fact, my parents at the time said, oh, why didn't you do medicine? You know, I really think you should do medicine. And I would have got into medicine, but I thought, no, I want to be a researcher. And so I stuck to my guns and that's exactly what I did. But now in hindsight, maybe I should have done medicine. I don't know. But then I might not have landed up in research. So, you know, you just don't know. I guess this is the path that I chose. And I think that I'm really happy that I did because I, I'm just passionate about it. So had I done medicine, as I say, I might not have come back into research. Although I know a lot of people that have done medicine and have come back as researchers really love it too. So and that and I think if you do medicine and then you come back into research, you have, you're have really well uh, rounded. But again, having said that, I haven't done that and I've had to really learn everything myself, which 
I've, which I've thoroughly enjoyed. So I don't feel like I've missed out by not having done medicine first, but if that's the path that other people choose, it will work equally well. So, yeah. How did you know when you were in high school that this is what you wanted to do? Like, had were you exposed to something, whether it was like TV or like a guest speaker or something that would helped you realise that this was actually a job you could have? I think when I was younger, my brother is 10 years older than I am. And my brother went into medicine and became a doctor. And I think I, I grew up in a household where education and learning was really considered important. And so seeing my brother go through med school and hearing the stories that he would tell, I was really fascinated. And I remember, I guess, one of the early memories that I do have is of him bringing home a frog and having to dissect the frog. And I was completely fascinated. I think most people would have been freaked out, but I wasn't. And I was there watching him dissect the frog. That was it. I was hooked. And I I didn't want to do, I wanted to learn about how everything worked and the mechanisms. And I think I thought with going into medicine, I wouldn't necessarily get that initially, but I, I just wanted to do science. It just seemed to fascinate me. And I I remember looking, I think I was in equivalent of year 10, and I was looking through University of Cape Town, which is the university that I went to. They used to put they put out this little booklet called a prospectus, and I would page through it and look at the different courses. And I saw microbiology and biochemistry, and I just said, "That's it. That's what I'm going to do." And that's what I did. So <laughs> I just loved the sound of it. I loved what I read about it, and I just thought I want to study about cells and how they work and how they communicate. And so, really, that's what set me off on the path towards where I am now. That's fantastic. And I just love that the frog did not put you off. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Aside from being introduced to this frog, um, were there any other events in that career journey that have really kind of inspired you or spurred you on? Like you mentioned a lot about resilience earlier. Were there sort of things that have helped you keep going to get where you are? Yes. Look, a path in science is definitely not easy. I think that Everyone sees the tip of the iceberg. Everyone sees the success, but nobody sees all the hard work that goes underneath. And there's a, I've, I've seen this, this picture of, of an iceberg where you really see the tip and it says success. And then underneath is all the, all the other things that go with it. All the failures go underneath. And I think that that's really so important for people to realize that, you know, with it, it's really the little bit that you see at the top which is, and people think, oh my goodness, they've, they've done so well, but it's so much hard work and, and so many knockbacks along the way that that's what makes you tough. And that's what makes you realize that you just got to keep going. When this, when you do get the success, it's, it's so sweet because you've, you've tried so hard to get there. It's definitely been well earned. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I guess when you look at what defines success, for me, it's getting our public, our papers published it's the recognition for the lab. And of course, it's also getting those important grants accepted because without the funding, you really can't do the research. And that what drives me to get the funding is so that I'm able to get the research for my lab. I know how hard they work. And so my job is really to facilitate what they do. And, and that that's what really makes me happy is when I know that I've done enough to make sure that they can carry on. That's fantastic to hear someone in a position of management or power genuinely appreciating and yeah, enjoying the work and the success. 
of the people under them. That's awesome. Yeah, without without the people under and without the people doing the work, uh, it wouldn't happen. So I totally uh, respect and value what they put in, and the hours and the work and the and their dedication is what makes me um, really really happy. Well, I've, I feel like we've touched on this a little bit, but what what helps you get up in the morning and go, you know, all the way to your desk and stay those extra hours like other other than getting things published what sort of helps motivate you every day well I think the main one of the main drivers is getting the results of the experiments that we do and when things work out it's just fabulous and to see the experiments many of them have taken a long time in the planning and careful execution of the experiments and then to get the results and to think about them sometimes they go the way you expect and you hypothesize that this is what's going to happen and you see that happen and that's really exciting. And other times they go completely opposite and you hypothesize something would be would potentially give you one type of result and it actually gives you the opposite. And that's exciting too because that means you have to think about it. Like why did it actually go the other way? Why was the gene expression that you expected to go up actually went down? Why was the protection that you thought was the drug that was going to protect against some disease, for example, diabetic cardiomyopathy or disease of the heart, why did that not work? So those are the sorts of things that really get me excited because it makes me question and it makes me think about other pathways that might be important. And through, I guess, through serendipity, you can actually come up with other ideas and maybe other novel treatments. So those are the sorts of things that keep me interested and engaged. The bits where we get to gradually chip away at the unknown and learn just a little bit and a little bit more every time. Yeah, correct. Absolutely. It feels like you get to be a bit creative as well, though, because your job is researching these novel things. And that means like you kind of have to be novel in your thinking sometimes, too. Yep, absolutely. And I'm always trying to find new angles. So looking, for example, looking for looking at what other people have done in other areas, in other fields, and then trying to bring that into our field. I can give you one example. Mm -hmm. I so our work is all basically around cardiovascular health. So we're interested in the heart, the vessels, and the mechanisms that underpin it. And then more recently, I became interested in what happens when you when you place a stent into vessels. And often when that happens, uh, you get a process called restenosis, which is where the vessels reclose. And I sort of questioned why this was happening. And together with collaborators now that I'm working with at Swinburne University, we've put together a little program where we're looking at the mechanisms and coming up with novel ways to be able to stop this process from happening. And this is a new area for me. And it's basically through collaboration with other universities, with other people, they've got the expertise in stent coatings. We've got the expertise in the models, which may drive the process. And together, we've come up with a a new and exciting program. So those are the sorts of things where, you know, you have to be on the lookout for new ideas, for new opportunities and be creative and think outside the box. And be willing to acknowledge that like, yes, I've got strengths in this area. We know these things. We've got some gaps. Can we go out and find people who can fill those gaps and we can work collaboratively to fill them in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that's really important. We, you know, we have to be aware of what other people are doing. They may have a concept or an idea which they're using in a different area, a different field, a different application, but you can see the benefits that that could 
be for your work and so you approach them and bring those sorts of techniques and technologies into the into the lab or alternatively you do it at their institute and together you can work something out collaboratively and that's really for you for the benefit of everybody it's so cool I love any story that shows how collaborative science is and the importance of being able to communicate and work with other people. Like it's not a lone genius scenario. No, not at all. And I think that's that's really true, especially with our lab. I mean, we, we do reach out and we have a number of collaborations and, and invariably we come up with something unique and something that benefits both parties concerned. What's some advice that you give to a young person who's considering a career, anything like yours? I think I would say that you have to be prepared for the small setbacks. It's not an easy journey, but it's a very rewarding journey. And you have to be curious and open-minded and be prepared to put in the hard work. But it's, as I say, it's just so rewarding. And getting the answers to those questions is really what will drive you forward. So if you have a curious mind and and you're interested in what happens, then this is the career path for you. If you yeah, if you want the opportunity to ask new questions and then actually find those answers, yeah, you'll have to deal with some setbacks, but it sounds like it's really worth it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that's that sums it up so true. Um, to be a real scientist, your day doesn't end at five o'clock. That's you know, you're hungry for science all, all the time. It really does become sort of everything in a way. It's a bit of a lifestyle. Yes, I would say so. <laughs> so if there's any mature people listening, maybe they've got a career already, but they're interested in either supporting your work or uh, finding out more about this sort of stuff, what, what can they do to help? So I guess reaching out and, I mean, we'd always be happy to talk to people, to tell them what we do, things like that. Uh, I'm sure there are courses out there where people can get involved, but actually sort of doing what we do is very specialized so I think that may not be as straightforward but there you know I would there's always mature age course science courses that they could look into things like that but I'm not 100% sure that they would be able to really sort of join a lab or um, do anything along those lines. Before we wrap up have you got anything else that we haven't touched on that you'd like to share? Oh that's a good question (laughs) I think I think we've covered just about everything maybe I'd just like to highlight the sort of research area because we haven't really touched on that Mm -hmm. so my my main focus is on two main pathways um, one being the oxidative stress but the other being on inflammation and the reason that I've chosen to focus on those two areas is because they kind of interplay with each other so you have oxidative stress which drives inflammation and vice versa, inflammation drives oxidative stress. And these are the two really what I feel key drivers of underlying many disease pathologies. So particularly underlying diabetic complications. And with all the complications, there is this component of oxidative stress and inflammation. And we're trying to understand the best ways to target these processes, because we believe that if we can target these processes, then we'll have a way to stop these complications from developing and so my research is really focused around one of the key drivers of controlling oxidative stress which is a transcription factor called NRF2 
and we've been looking at novel ways to target this transcription factor. And then the second approach that we've just recently got into is trying to understand how sterile inflammation, which is the inflammation which is not driven by pathogens such as viruses or bacteria, but really the inflammation that just keeps ticking in our bodies, how we can target that. And there's a very nice platform called an NLRP3 inflammasome. And the NLRP3 inflammasome, we believe, is something that is worth targeting. So those are the kind of areas that, that we've been focusing on and understanding the processes that drive those areas. Is your hope that the treatments that potentially come out of this research, that they'll be given to people early in the, the diabetic journey, for want of a better description, or and or ones that are given to people who have like 10 years worth of damage and would be able to help them recover? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So I think that we would like to target as early as possible. And I think the reason for that is the sooner you target the treatment, the better the outcomes will be. But having said that, you often aren't aware until an event occurs that the patient will have this issue. So we also, so we basically, when we do our experiments, we, we have two approaches. We have a prevention approach uh, where we treat from the beginning and we have an intervention approach where we treat once the disease process has already occurred or starting to occur so that we can see whether our treatment can actually be preventative or whether it can intervene and improve the consequences all the conditions associated with diabetes. So yes, a really, really good question. We'd like our treatments to be able to target both aspects. Fantastic. That's really exciting because like, obviously it's good to get to people early, but we there's so many situations where that just isn't going to happen. And especially for the people who've got it now before, before your treatments come out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yes, we do try and, and target both. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing all that. That's it's a window into a whole world that I think so many people just aren't aware of. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm delighted that I could share this this time with you. Have you got a virtual high five or a shout out for someone who you think is just doing an awesome job and you'd like everyone who's listening to the podcast to give them a virtual high five? Um, so, yes, I'd like to give a virtual high five to my, the people in my lab, particularly uh, Dr. Apita Sharma, who's been my postdoc for a number of years and uh, she just does a fabulous job so shout out to our peter i'm stoked you've managed to keep a um a researcher on that's really really that's a sign of a healthy lab yep thank you <laughs> <laughs> yep so massive high five to everyone who's doing this research and hopefully improving the quality of life of well potentially millions of people around the world so thank you so much for joining us on the show judy it has been incredibly eye-opening and well, I've had a fantastic time. Oh, great. Excellent. I have too. So thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, you're an absolute gem of a human being and you should head over to avidresearch.com.au, sign up for our amazing email newsletter and get all the download on the upcoming episodes and maybe even get a bit of a sneak peek about what's coming next. If you've been enjoying this podcast, you should definitely subscribe. We're on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and even Google these days. Thanks. Thanks.